This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm Peggy Hodgkins, and today we are talking about reservoirs and how they contribute to global methane emissions with ecologist Bridget Deemer. Yeah, I'm Bridget Deemer. I'm a research ecologist with the U.S. Geological Survey. I consider myself a biogeochemist, so I'm really interested in how nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus, but also carbon cycle through ecosystems, and especially how human activities, um, particularly the construction of dams, affects that cycling of those different nutrients and carbon. I am the USGS lead on an interagency group that monitors the water quality of Lake Powell. And then I also research the ecology of the river below the dam. I also have a big interest in reservoirs more broadly as a greenhouse gas source. That was what I did my PhD work on, and I'm continuing to be involved in efforts to understand emissions from reservoirs, not just Lake Powell, but around the country and globally kind of thinking about controls. Thank you. And I wanted to start just by having you explain the process by which a large reservoir or lake emits greenhouse gases. Yeah, I think a lot of people, when they think of methane in particular, they think of cows and sort of the fermentation of material in a cow gut those same microbes and other microbes that exist inside cows and inside of people also exist in the sediments of lakes and reservoirs. So these microbes are decomposing organic matter, anything from trees to little algae that grow in the water. And in this process of decomposition, if there's no oxygen around, um, one result is the production of methane. And then if oxygen is around, the result is more carbon dioxide. It's this biological activity that's predominantly responsible for the greenhouse gas emissions in a lot of lakes and reservoirs. I think people kind of have a mental model of what some of the activities are or sources are for greenhouse gases and reservoirs and and even lakes don't tend to come to mind. But in terms of methane, aquatic sources, lakes, reservoirs, and rivers likely make up approximately half of all the methane sources um, around the globe. And, and does it have anything to do with, say, how, how large uh, the reservoir is, or can it happen even in a small lake? Yeah, that's interesting you ask that. There's actually some really cool work looking particularly at the size of systems, and it actually tends to be sort of counterintuitively that the smallest systems tend to emit the most of these greenhouse gases. And one way to think about that is that there's just a lot of interaction um, between terrestrial inputs and small ponds in terms of how much carbon is available to be respired and emitted. But another way to think about this is you can think about it per unit surface area, in which case the ponds are 
are really important. But if you have a really big water body that's emitting substantial emissions, then that adds up because the surface area is big to begin with. The thing that I think is really cool about methane in particular is that you can sometimes see that emission. It doesn't dissolve in water very easily. So a lot of the emission often comes in the form of bubbles. If you're standing on the shoreline of a small pond in particular, but a, a lake or a reservoir, and you see bubbles coming up, as long as they don't smell like rotten eggs, in which case it's probably hydrogen sulfide, <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's likely that it's methane. And so you're actually watching the emission process through these bubbles. And how do you measure the volume of greenhouse gas emissions that are coming off a lake or a reservoir? In principle, it's pretty simple. So the idea is to measure an amount or a mass of gas that's escaping per unit surface area per unit time. One of the simplest ways to do that is to take what we call a floating chamber, which is sort of just a glorified upside down, and put it, put it over the surface of the water and then take samples out of the headspace of the bucket and measure the increase in greenhouse gas concentration over a unit of time, like a half an hour. And then in the case of those bubble emissions, we put out an inverted funnel that hangs below the surface of the water from a buoy, and it literally just traps bubbles as they're rising up through the water column. There can be episodic events like water level drops where you can see like 90% of the whole year emission in less than a month period. If you really want to be highly certain about the emission from a system, you have to do a lot of work in terms of measuring at a lot of spots and time points. So you measure the emissions coming off of a reservoir. How then, how then can you relate to how that is affecting if you, if you have a number of, say, reservoir lakes, ballpark, say, in the northern hemisphere or whatever your sample size is, how do you then translate, you know, what contribution these bodies of water are contributing to a, the larger budget of greenhouse gases? Mm -hmm. I mean, how do you know how much they're affecting it? That's a good question. And Part of your question had to do with knowing how many lakes and reservoirs and ponds there are. You know, that's arguably a similarly complex challenge to knowing how much flux is coming from the systems, how much greenhouse gas is coming from the systems, especially as water bodies get smaller. It's just really hard to estimate that surface area with satellite reflectance products, you know, some ponds are in the middle of a forest or temporary in, in time. The earliest estimates of lake and reservoir greenhouse gas flux, they compiled all the published measurements of emission, and they just averaged all those different estimates of emission together to get an average flux. And then they took an estimated, a very roughly estimated surface area and just multiplied those together to try to get at 
how big that emission could be. And through time, as scientists have realized that lakes and reservoirs are a really important part of the global greenhouse gas budget, those calculations have gotten more sophisticated. We have a better understanding of water body surface area from satellite products, but we also have a better understanding of lake size, but also lake productivity or how much algal production is happening in the lake, how those factors influence emission. And so we can take all that information together to get at a better idea of the contribution to the whole budget. But our budgets still don't match up. What I just described is a bottom-up estimate where we take emission estimates from the water bodies themselves, and then we count how many water bodies there are, and we turn that into an emission estimate. But there are also top-down models that look at how much methane we observe coming into the atmosphere and then try to backtrack where all that methane came from. And, and those, those models don't line up perfectly. So there's, there's some open questions still to resolve. <laughs> And is there a time frame or a, a year when this phenomenon of, of reservoirs emitting greenhouse gases sort of became more common knowledge, like people started actually looking at it more? The first review article that talked about this was in the year 2000. And the authors, I think, were summarizing somewhere, you know, less than 10 studies but, you know, they suggested that this could be an important flux. You know, they showed pictures of reservoirs are different than lakes and that they're, we, we create them by flooding terrestrial landscapes. So in concept, it makes sense that they would emit potentially more greenhouse gases than lakes just because they're, they're flooding a lot of stored carbon from, you know, existing terrestrial ecosystems. But then I'd say from the year 2000 through maybe the mid 2010s, there was be 100 or 150 more papers that came out. And then since the mid 2010s, it's exploded a lot more than that. Like there's a lot of interest in this topic, not just in reservoirs, but also in lakes, because even though re reservoirs emit a lot per unit surface area, there are quite a bit more lakes around the globe than there are reservoirs. Well, let's go to Lake Powell. That is kind of one of your focus areas. Lake Powell's got so many issues surrounding it, <laughs> this, mm -hmm. just being one of them. Being in such an arid environment, how is Lake Powell different than some of the other lakes you might have looked at? Yeah, that was one reason I was excited to be working on Lake Powell's that it's just so different from a lot of the other lakes and reservoirs that I've worked in previously. Arid lakes and reservoirs in general, I think are underrepresented in the ecology and limnology research. And part of that is there's not a lot of natural lakes and arid environments. But when it comes to reservoirs, you know, reservoirs are particularly important in arid environments because they represent significant water storage, just like Lake Powell does. One of the reasons that the Lake Powell Water Quality Monitoring Program started was because of concerns about salinity in the 
Colorado River Basin. So there's a salinity control program that funds the monitoring work. It's not a high salinity system, but it's higher salinity than many lakes and reservoirs. So I was interested to take some greenhouse gas measurements on Lake Powell because there's sort of a general conceptual model that saltier systems tend to emit less methane, but there's not, you know, there's not a lot of saline reservoirs with data compared to. Interesting. Um, so not a lot of the reservoirs along the Colorado River system have been monitored for greenhouse gases. No. Yeah. One other unique thing about Lake Powell that probably folks have an appreciation for in Moab who have have visited or just even seen pictures of Lake Powell is just how long the shoreline is. The shoreline is estimated to be, I think it's depending on the water level, it could be like the entire length of the West coast of the United States. Wow. Just because there's so many small tributaries draining in, it's so dendritic that it has a lot of littoral habitat, especially at higher water levels. Now that the lake levels are dropping, that's, that's changed a bit. And we're sort of more in the like really canyon bound, steep walled section of the Lake Powell bathymetry. The last thing I guess I'll say in terms of uniqueness is just the extent of water level decline in Lake Powell. You know, that's made the news and is a big issue in terms of the water storage in the Colorado River Basin. But it's also really interesting from an ecological and biogeochemical standpoint, just thinking about this area of the shoreline that's periodically inundated and then dry. And, you know, a lot of reservoirs have that region. But in Lake Powell, the sort of time frame of exposure and re-inundation is a lot longer than in, you know, wetter environments where that, that drying and re-wetting is happening more on seasonal timescales instead of like 10-year, 20-year timescales. Given that we're talking about a a huge reservoir on a huge river system, I mean, are there any effects downstream of the dam from this lake bottom methane production? Or is it all just contained in the, in the reservoir? I mean, I love thinking about the connections between Lake Powell and the river below it. Yeah. Um, and sort of at the most basic level, all the decomposition that happens in the lake results in oxygen drawdowns. The water that that's withdrawn from Lake Powell and um, flows out into the Glen Canyon reach of the Colorado River is undersaturated in dissolved oxygen because it's spilling from the bottom waters of the reservoir where decomposition has happened and the oxygen from the surface can't mix down that deep fast enough to replace the decomposition that's, that's happened in those bottom waters. And one interesting thing that's happening with these low water levels that we're, that we're experiencing in Lake Powell now is that when a large inflow comes and remobilizes all that dry deltaic sediment, you can get these low dissolved oxygen events in the middle of the Lake Powell water column. And we haven't taken greenhouse gas measurements associated with that, but those low dissolved oxygen plumes are the result of both biological activity that would produce greenhouse gases, 
but also some degree of um, just chemical the oxygen consumption from the sediments themselves. And we don't know how much is one versus the other. We haven't done incubations to look at that. But those plumes can get pulled towards the dam and can result in lower concentrations of dissolved oxygen coming into, into the Glen Canyon Reach, which is a concern for the rainbow trout fishery there. Um, so that's not directly related to methane and carbon dioxide, but it is, it's related to the, the overall process of organic matter respiration that happens in the reservoir. Yeah, kind of the decomposition mm -hmm. cycle. Interesting. With all this phenomenon of green, greenhouse gases coming off these big dammed reservoirs, it puts into question how green hydropower is in the, in the long run. So I was just wondering if there's any action to like take some of this science and might be down the road a ways, but, you know, and have some suggestions for how to maybe operate the dam to somehow reduce that effect. Have you thought along those lines at all? Yeah. I mean, that's the million dollar question. Um, and I think the challenge with that is that it's so case by case specific. Some reservoirs like Lake Powell, we estimate that they emit quite a bit less than fossil fuel-based sources of energy. But then other reservoirs are emitting, you know, quite a bit more than a fossil fuel-based source of energy would per the amount of energy that's being produced in those reservoirs from hydropower. And so I think, you know, the first step is just talking about and acknowledging this phenomenon and, and bringing it to folks' attention. And the next step is these efforts that I think I mentioned before, where, you know, now reservoirs are included in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's required inventory reporting. So countries now have to estimate how much greenhouse gas emission is coming from reservoirs as part of their flooded lands inventory. Oh, excellent. And I think the third step is what you were asking about is, you know, thinking about ways to mitigate or reduce that flux where we can because reservoirs are managed systems. And, you know, I think there's a lot of interesting opportunities there, knowing what we know that more nutrient-enriched systems tend to emit more, but also knowing what we know about the size of systems. We also know that depth, the depth of the system is important. Shallower systems tend to emit more than deeper systems. So if we think about like designing retention ponds, for example, you know, knowing things about how the, the shape of the retention pond and its location and how much nutrient input it's going to receive keeping those things in mind in a broader planning context is a powerful approach. Well, Bridget, thanks so much for talking with Science Moab and kind of breaking down all the greenhouse gases effects that we see from all these reservoirs. Well, thanks so much for having me. Awesome. To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Science Moab is done in partnership with Utah State University Extension. 
newsletter by Luke Williams. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding. And the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.